0: This is the Behavioral Observations Podcast with Matt Sequoria, session number 45. Welcome to the Behavioral Observations
1: Podcast, stimulating talk for today's behavior analysts. Now, here's your host, Matt Sequoria. Hey, everybody.
0: Welcome to the I'm Getting Over a Cold edition of the Behavioral Observations podcast. You know, I thought about delaying this recording until my voice was in, uh, I guess, its regular, uh, somewhat less gravelly form. But um, it's been a while since I put out a show, and uh, I figured the show must go on. And I've got a great interview to share with you today, so I'm pretty psyched about that. So uh, if you can just kind of bear with me here for a few minutes, I'll make this intro really short and get right to the conversation that I have in store for you. And to get to that conversation, I want to talk about our guest today. You know, I was listening to a, uh, another show and uh, the host was saying something to the effect of, if you ever want to meet your heroes, start a podcast. And I, you know, I'm reflecting on almost two years of podcasting now, and it's certainly been true in my experience, and uh, today is no different. So today we have a uh, conversation with none other than Dr. Wayne Fisher, who is the H.P. Monroe Professor of Behavioral Research at the Monroe-Meyer Institute and the Department of Pediatrics at the University of Nebraska Medical Center. He's also the director of the Center for Autism Spectrum Disorders at the Monroe Meyer Institute. He has published over 175 peer reviewed research studies in over 30 different behavioral or medical journals, a lot of those having to do with the assessment and treatment of severe behavior disorders. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. We're going to talk about his uh, career as well as his take on uh, best practices as it relates to uh, functional analysis methodology and function based treatment. So, I think it's an episode that you're really going to like. Before we get to that conversation, I do want to let you know that this podcast is brought to you by Chartlytics. You know, Chartlytics um, is a single comprehensive system for behavioral reduction and academic improvement that's done through precision teaching. It's based on 50 years of peer-reviewed research and experience in applied academic and behavioral settings. So, they do a lot of different things. One of the things uh, Chartlytics has been about is uh, they're doing a lot of cool workshops. And if you've been listening for the last couple episodes, you know that I recently attended one uh, that was put on by uh, Dr. Rick Cabina. And they've got a couple uh, workshops that are coming up in the uh, Pittsburgh, Connecticut, and uh, Pensacola, Florida areas. And so. If you want to attend any of these workshops, and if you want to save a few bucks, go to chartlitics.com forward slash Matt, and enter the promo code uh, Matt, <laughs> oddly enough, uh, to save 10%. And on that same page, they've got a lot of other freebies, namely uh, a free ebook on precision teaching, and also a free one-credit CEU webinar on, uh, guess what, precision teaching. So it's a lot of cool stuff. It's a great Great workshop. I enjoyed it a lot. And um, I think you will too. So, uh, this podcast is also sponsored by Opera and Coffee. And Opera and Coffee, uh, you know, their mission is to help you serve amazing coffee while promoting environmentally safe and sustainable business practices. And I have sampled the coffee as part of the vetting process for this product. And I can assure you that it is outstanding. And I can be kind of picky about those things too. So, um Anywho, they are uh, roasted with Fair trade certified coffee beans and made in partnership with the Philly Fair Trade Roasters. It's made from blends of beans from Central and South America and the Pacific Islands. So um, if you want to uh, save the world with sustainable business practices, go to operancoffee.com And if you want to save a few bucks while ordering your Opera and Coffee, you can enter the promo code BEHAVIORPODCAST and uh, you'll be good to go so um, that's it for uh, introductory comments thank you for bearing with me and um, uh, don't worry the interview was recorded well before this cold struck and so without any further ado please enjoy this conversation with dr. Wayne Fisher dr. Wayne Fisher thank you so much for joining me today on the behavioral observations podcast how are you doing
1: I'm doing great how about you Matt
0: I'm, I'm really excited. Uh, it's, it's, uh, been something, uh, that I've been, as you know, we've been trying to put it on the calendar for a little while and I'm, uh, really excited that we, uh, we carved out the time to do it. And, um, it's, it's been, a um, one of those things I've been wanting to do since, well, for a long time, but especially since seeing the uh, symposium at the last Chicago ABAI when, uh, both uh, you and uh, Greg Hanley were kind of going back and forth with some philosophical differences about functional assessment and things like that. We'll probably get into that a little bit later on our, on our conversation. But ever since then, I was like, "Oh, I got to have Dr. Fisher on the program, and this would be fun to to kind of kick around here because that was uh, an exciting exchange of views." So uh, okay, <laughs> but before we get to that stuff, uh, I. You know, you've you've been in the field for quite some time, and I would love to get your perspective about you know, both how you got into the field, but also, you know, what the field was like as you were coming up as an undergraduate and graduate student and things like that, and how you first got exposure to behavior analysis. So if you could start with kind of uh, taking us back to that time and letting us know uh, how, what it was like uh, at, at that point in the development of the field, that would be great.
1: Okay, well, how I got into the field uh, was really um, I had a uh, professor at the uh, community college I went to for two years who taught psychology from a behavior analytic point of view and uh, described other schools of psychology as basically from a historic and historical perspective Um, and uh, what the way he talked and what he talked about really clicked and made sense with me um but actually at the time i was interested in going into music therapy uh believe it or not and i didn't know much of anything about music therapy and hadn't seen any information on its effectiveness but i was interested in music i was interested in therapy it seemed like a natural match Um, then uh when i went to i ended up going to michigan state uh, and my primary instrument was guitar and secondary was uh, piano uh, but they wouldn't let you major in pian- in uh, guitar and so i had to take the uh audition to get into the program on the piano after playing the piano for about less than a year uh and i failed the Uh, audition and ended up going to the academic counselor uh, who couldn't figure out what to do with all my music classes, et cetera, and said, well, you could always go into psychology and just count them all as electives. Uh, And that's basically how I got into psychology, and then I just was naturally uh, drawn to the folks at Michigan State who were interested in uh, behavior analysis, and I started volunteering uh, working with an adult, a young adult with uh, autism, and then in a uh, school, the Beekman Center in Lansing uh, for children with developmental disabilities. And I worked specifically in classrooms for individuals with autism and was immediately drawn to the young child who had real severe behavior and had bitten the end of a finger off of another uh, child in the class. And they asked me who I wanted to work with. And I said, oh, I want to work with that child. <laughs> um, crazy as that may sound, I was just very, very drawn to understanding and, and working with uh, severe problem behavior. So
0: uh, I always love how different people enter the field in different ways. So your lack of proficiency with the piano <laughs> led to this uh Several decades of uh, you know scientific papers and things like that, <laughs> numerous publications yeah. and so on and so forth. It's amazing. It's yeah. one of my favorite I- questions I ask guests on the on the podcast. So it's uh, um, always always uh, surprises me uh, how how people contact the field in various ways. And uh, so,
1: yeah, I was very glad in the, in the long run that I failed the audition. <laughs>
0: yeah you know it's funny when people you know that that kind of cliche is like well, things happen for a reason, you know uh, I'm, sometimes I'm more and sometimes I'm less convinced of the veracity of that, but this is certainly one of those cases where it, it, it seemed to seemed to pan out all right so yeah. um so one of the things I want to talk about obviously is uh, functional analysis procedures, and um so I want to get your perspective at, you know having. You having been at this for for uh, quite a long time is um, what's your take on how functional analytic procedures have evolved from say like the early days of you know the original Awada et al. eighty two you know I know I know we could probably like spend a a semester discussing the the, the, this but in broad strokes how how do you see the um, how do you see Functional analysis, as it stands now, as we're talking in 2018, as it was in comparison to when it was, those procedures were developed in the uh, in the 80s and 90s.
1: Yeah, um, I would say perhaps the largest change is less in the area of functional analysis and more in the area of what functional analysis has brought about in how we change what we do in terms of treatment and also in terms of analyzing behavior. And so functional analysis has provided us with an amazing tool uh, that has taught us to think about problem behavior uh, from a much more sophisticated perspective. And that has led to a variety of interventions that just weren't available before uh, functional analysis procedures, uh, were developed. Um, so for example, uh, when I was at the Kennedy Krieger Institute, I was talking with a group of our psychology interns then, and, um, they asked me, well, do we really need to do a functional analysis? Can't, if we feel like we have a good handle on the behavior, can't we just go ahead and, and start treatment? And so I, as I often did, I answered the question with a question. And I asked, could you, let's, let's just say that we have a child who consistently engages in problem behavior when we introduce demands and consistently stops engaging in problem behavior when we remove uh, non-preferred demands. Uh, how would you proceed with that child? What would you do? And they went through about five or six um, treatments for escape maintained behavior, such as uh, escape extinction, demand fading, uh, differential positive reinforcement, differential negative reinforcement, um, competition between positive and negative reinforcement. And I said, those are all excellent treatments and none of them were available before functional analysis was developed and functional analysis led to the discovery, use and evaluation of those procedures. And so to me, that's one of the greatest uh, contributions of functional analysis is that it's led to us having a much broader array of uh, potential treatments. Now, if I focus specifically on what's happened in functional analysis procedures, there have been uh, quite a number of procedural refinements, um, how we uh, set up functional analysis conditions, things like having equal reinforcement intervals across conditions, uh, other things like interpretive methods, how do we interpret functional analyses so that we are uh, reliable and valid in our interpretation. And uh, we've done some of that research uh, my colleagues and I, and, um, and our latest iteration uh, has recently been accepted at Java and should be coming out in early view and not too long, which we call ongoing visual inspection. And what this is designed to do is to help, especially DAVIS behavior analysts, to look at a functional analysis, say after three conditions or three series of each condition has been, have been conducted and then to be able to test, does this look clinically significant? And if so, uh, can we rule out that these uh, this pattern of responses occurred by chance? And we use very basic probability statistics, uh, Bayesian statistics to do that. And then uh, if we ha- identify one or more functions, then we also have a criterion that looks at, well, if we ran one more series, each condition one more time, is it possible that we could identify a second function of problem behavior? And if we could do that, we would go ahead, the recommendation would be to go ahead and run that next condition. If we don't, uh, if what that tells us is, even if we ran one more series, we wouldn't identify another function that would tell us the functional analysis is complete. And so as we've tested this procedure out on, we did it on a hundred functional analyses. Uh, what we found is that we could shorten the length of functional analyses by about 40%. And these are functional analyses published in the literature simply, simply by having a systematic way of interpreting the functional analyses, Uh, functional analysis and determining when we should stop the functional analysis. So that would be an example of a procedural uh, refinement. Um, And there's a wide variety of other things that have been done to help improve the efficiency of functional analysis procedures, such as conducting a series of alone conditions at the start to uh, provide a screen for automatically reinforced behaviors, uh, trial-based Uh, functional analyses are becoming more commonplace and we've recently reviewed the literature on efficiency and uh, that appears to be the most efficient way of identifying a function of problem behavior. And there are a variety of others. Uh, I won't go through a laundry list, but there's a large increase of procedural refinements, efficiency refinements, and also things that we can do Uh, to identify idiosyncratic functions. So if we run a standard functional analysis using the basic procedures developed by Iwata with with some of the procedural refinements I've talked about, and our initial results are not interpretable, what do we do next? And we've developed a series of procedures to help uh, guide clinicians in those next steps to try and identify idiosyncratic functions.
0: So, um, that kind of brings up a favorite study of mine uh, or one of my favorite studies that uh, you were, I believe, the primary author on. And, I, um, and it was just a brief report in Java from way back in 1996. It's uh, on the reinforcing effects of the content of verbal attention. And so it looks like you guys, if memory serves that um, you tested different types of... Uh, attention-based responses, uh, and uh, to, in, the, in the, if, if I'm, again, recalling correctly, the individual was sensitive to certain types of statements that were like, you know, don't do that, or that hurts, or something, or you're going to hurt yourself, whereas other types of attention were, were not, um, you know, did not serve as, as reinforcers and things like that. Is that the kind of thing that you're talking about in terms of, you know, this kind of problem-solving in the wake yeah. of an inconclusive F.A.?
1: Yeah, so um, and and ours that was one of now now quite a number of uh, studies that have followed up on that paper on um, are there various ways of delivering attention that affect the effectiveness of that uh, consequence as a reinforcer? And uh, so we have kids that respond very much to very minor, uh, physical attention, being physically guided. Uh, um, we currently have a child in the house uh, who, um, where praise is, a, uh, the termination of praise is an effective negative reinforcer. So we we analyze this where, if we provide uh, a, a praise contingent on compliance, we get very low levels of compliance, if when we deliver the request, write the letter B, and before the child does anything, we start praising them, oh, you're working really hard. You're really doing a great job today. Um, That uh, would um, not result in, uh, would, would, would actually result in very quick compliance if we then terminate the praise as soon as they comply with the task. So we've analyzed this several ways. And so one hypothesis would be that by delivering praise right from the start, it's acting as uh, an abolishing operation and lowering the aversiveness of demands. And so the individual with all that praise is, is being more cooperative. Um, and that proved not to be the case. That is when we provided praise, but we didn't stop once the person had completed the task, Uh, we had very low levels of compliance and also had uh, evoked very serious and dangerous problem behavior. But if we terminated praise as soon as they complied, then we had high levels of compliance and no problem behavior. So it was actually the termination of praise that functioned as negative reinforcement uh, for problem behavior in this individual. And so we see individuals who don't present uh, with the typical types of reinforcement contingencies of normal attention, uh, uh, escape, tangible items. And then we've uh, developed ways of looking at the behavior of uh, doing more focused interviews. Uh, uh, we typically will go through and once we've observed the behavior, we're then in a better position. We've had some experience. We could then talk more with the family about the specific situations in which problem behavior is evoked. Uh, we typically will do ABC data and do more focused observations. So if the behaviors primarily occurring at lunchtime, we'll observe then and collect ABC data. Uh, And then we try to generate hypotheses on what might be the idiosyncratic variables maintaining the behavior. And we'll do probe sessions, much like a trial-based FA, where we will essentially set up the establishing operation and see if the behavior occurs, deliver the reinforcer. Uh, And if we can do that several times, uh, we're pretty confident that we ad- identified a potential function, and then we'll do a little bit longer and more detailed functional analysis on that idiosyncratic function. So, and so go if ahead. I'm getting
0: you that for those individuals with uh, inconclusive resu- standard FA results, that you would do some some form of descriptive and uh, indirect assessment uh not necessarily to replace the the f a but more so to set up uh, a more refined probe uh, analysis in other words, it informs another f a of that is now more i guess focused or circumscribed is that is that is that correct
1: yes yes um, so um, our experience and belief is that uh, descriptive assessments, we do very informal ones on the front end to help determine uh, what forms of attention parents typically provide. And that helps inform our attention condition, what types of uh, non-preferred tasks may evoke problem behavior. Uh, if the child has is uh, may have a tangible function, what sort of items are most likely to Evoke problem behavior when they're removed from the child, and so we can do that in a very brief interview with the parents, um, and that helps to inform our FA. But it doesn't really change dramatically what we do. We still do a fairly standard functional assessment, and uh, and the and our logic for that is that when you do descriptive studies such as that done by. Um, Thompson and Iwata, Rachel Thompson and Brian Iwata, uh, you find that the typical contingencies of providing attention, escape, etc., cetera, are almost ubiquitous. They occur so commonly that it makes sense to test those really common contingencies and either rule them in and rule them out Uh, as a function of problem behavior, but if they don't maintain problem behavior, we don't get a clear result, then we want to do a much more detailed, descriptive assessment. And that's where we'll do an ABC data. We will do more focused and more lengthy interviews with the staff and uh, parents, and then do these probe sessions uh, to try and test out what we think might be the idiosyncratic function.
0: I see. Uh, from from your view of the literature and the you know kind of lengthy uh, you know scholar you know uh, scholarship that you've done in this area, um, uh, one thing I'm curious about is: are there any kind of uh, myths that you'd like to dispel, or common misunderstandings about the functional analysis that you'd like to address? We have a lot of students of applied behavior analysis, or uh, practitioners who are very uh, early in their careers and things like that. So, um, what's what's your take on that? Are there any? Because I, you know, for ex- I'll give you kind of like a quick example of, um, and I don't know the extent to which this is uh, uh, true or not. But I went to a functional analysis workshop uh, a long, long time ago, and uh, the question came up about. Um, you know, multiply controlled problem behaviors. And I, I, um, it was a workshop put on by Brian Awada. So obviously we, you know, it was right from the source. And, um, I don't know if I'm uh, I might, I might not get exactly his wording just right, but, you know, it, it, I think the idea of like, uh, multiple, uh, multiply controlled problem behaviors was kind of downplayed. Um, and it was more of a, the, 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 the follow-up to that was that, you know, you had to look at the situation more closely and, uh, you know, perhaps get tighter experimental control over your analysis, you know? And so again, this was many years ago and perhaps the, the the literature's evolved since then. Um, But again, that's just an example. So are there any kind of uh, things like that, that you want to address or at least, uh, you know, uh, uh, help us understand a little bit better?
1: Uh, Sure. Um, From my standpoint, perhaps the biggest myth is that functional analysis procedures can't be done by routine practitioners under normal types of conditions or can't be done in school systems by school psychologists um, and perhaps BCBAs working in school systems. Uh, The procedures have become better defined and we've developed things like uh, trial-based FAs uh, that often can be done uh, very briefly and integrated with naturally occurring activities. And so we have a study in Java, uh, Tiffany Kodak was the first author, and in which these were kids in our early intervention program who had behavior problems, uh, not sufficient for them to go into our severe behavior uh program, but still it was important to understand the function of behavior to come up with an effective treatment. And we basically did trial-based FAs where uh, they would would run a program, say receptive ID program with the child. And at the end of that, or uh, on the break, we might run uh, two or three trials uh, for the function, for the trial-based FA. And so over the course of uh, a week, sometimes two weeks, we complete the trial-based FA, and it takes almost no extra time. That is, it's, it's basically occurring during the transition between uh, completing a program and taking a brief uh, break, and we just fit it in there, you know, sometimes taking a minute, minute and a half uh, to run several trials.
0: I see. Um, so one of the you alluded to this uh, earlier in our conversation and I, I want to circle back to it. Um, so I want to ask a similar question as I asked about functional analyses in terms of their evolution over the years. And you, you alluded to, you know, different types of function-based treatments. Um, so what, what, it, from your perspective, um, you know, how have function-based treatments evolved and what, perhaps more importantly, are... Some uh, you know kind of best practices as it relates to uh, people out there practicing uh, right now.
1: Okay, um, so, uh, sorry. Uh, for us, we've been working um, for a long time on improving functional communication training as a treatment for severe problem behavior. And uh, we've done a number of things uh, in terms of how do you select the uh, functional communication response? Um, Should you use functional communication training as the treatment versus uh, would it be more advisable to start with uh, non-contingent reinforcement, for example? And so we've developed a series of guidelines on those. Um, We have uh, videos and a treatment manual that we put together in coordination with Western Michigan University uh, that's available on their website that uh, individuals can go and watch the video and then uh, look at the manual. But just to give you um, some uh, uh, basic uh, kind of framework, uh, typically what we will do uh, for kids, very frequently kids start out in what we call our family behavior management clinic. And we might start with a, uh, uh, a questionnaire such as the QABF. Uh, and if we get clear results, then we'll proceed to treatment. If we don't, we might move on to a um, trial-based FA And if we don't get clear results then, then we're probably gonna need to do a a functional analysis, um, a multi-element standard functional analysis. And then our first kind of big question is, is this behavior maintained by social reinforcement versus is it maintained by automatic reinforcement? And if it's maintained by social reinforcement, then we're going to generally start with functional communication training and again, in this, uh, in our videos and uh, our training manual, we provide fairly detailed procedures on how to proceed with that, <clears throat> including the prompting strategies and with videos showing that. Once we have the child uh, displaying the functional communication response consistently, and we have low levels of problem behavior, we typically uh, want to then move on to making the treatment more practical. Uh, we do that by doing uh, reinforcers schedule thinning using a multiple schedule where we train the child uh, to emit the functional communication response in the presence of, say, a colored card, a blue card that uh, our therapists wear on a lanyard and we teach them not to display the functional communication response uh, when we show the yellow card on the lanyard. And we go back and forth and do our training until the child is consistently requesting reinforcement when we signal that it's available and consistently not requesting reinforcement that when we signal that uh, reinforcement is unavailable. And once we do that, the fading and thinning of the schedule Uh, goes much more smoothly when we use a a multiple schedule. And typically we will start uh, with very quick changes between the uh, SD and S delta, and then gradually extend the duration of the X delta to when the, uh, uh, for a typical child, we want them waiting, say, um, out of a 10 minute interval, they're waiting eight minutes, and they're receiving reinforcement maybe for two minutes out of that 10 minute interval. Uh, For older children, we're gonna use what's going on at school, what the expectations are in the classroom for determining how long uh, the child needs to tolerate periods where reinforcement is unavailable. Um, And also we may introduce uh, work activities during the S Delta period where reinforcement for the functional communication response is uh, unavailable. Um, we then test out uh, the treatments and use the multiple schedule to help uh, program for transfer across situations, across settings, and also across individuals. And our research has shown that, uh, for example, uh, most clinicians have had the experience where a particular child works really well with their primary therapist. And then that primary therapist goes on vacation or is ill for a few days and somebody else starts working with the child and their behavior falls apart uh, quite rapidly. And so we've found now that by bringing the behavior under good discriminative control of a multiple schedule, we can often prevent that uh, relapse of behavior that occurs when we change uh, the context simply by changing who the therapist is. We've shown the same thing where we, we can make uh transfers to new situations across rooms settings classrooms uh, more quickly if the behavior is under the control of a multiple schedule and we're currently working on have a paper that we've just submitted showing that it, uh, the multiple schedule can also facilitate transfer of the treatment effects uh to the caregivers so uh, i need to hold on just a second sure Sorry, my throat is getting a little dry there. That's
0: okay. Um, okay, so yeah, I've the got other... the easy job, Dr. Fisher. I just get to <laughs> ask a, a, a quick question. You've got to do all this lengthy explanation. So, um,
1: so uh, I was just going. So, if the behavior is maintained by automatic reinforcement, would be our other major branch in our decision tree. Um, then uh, we will typically do what's called a competing items assessment, uh, where we expose the child to various uh, preferred items. And we measure how much problem behavior occurs when they have that item versus how much uh, they engage with the items. And then we're looking for items with high levels of item engagement and low levels of problem behavior. Uh, and then we program those in to help decrease problem behavior. Uh, if. If the behavior persists, even with competing items, we will frequently add uh, response blocking. And we found that that uh, that approach uh, works with the vast majority of kids with uh, automatically reinforced behavior.
0: I see. Um, Do you want to take a minute and kind of describe your your program out there at uh, the University of Nebraska? Uh,
1: Sure. So... We have uh, so the Center for Autism Spectrum Disorders. We have roughly uh, 120 uh, individuals working in the center. Um, faculty. Uh, we have postdocs, predocs. Uh, we have a PhD program. Have about 15 uh, PhD students in that program. Uh, we have a master's program affiliated with the University of Nebraska Omaha. The kids, the individuals are enrolled in the University of Nebraska Omaha and many of them will do their uh, practical work with us. Uh, We have a uh, interdisciplinary diagnostic uh, clinic where kids come in uh, for workups. We see about uh, six to 10 kids per week in that. Um, And so we have a lot of kids coming in uh, who need treatment, need services. We have our severe behavior program with kids with self-injury, aggression, property destruction, pica, elopement, behaviors that are harmful to the individual, to themselves, to others, uh, or to the environment. And those kids come into the program usually for uh, eight to 12 weeks. And we do functional analyses. We develop the types of treatments that I've been talking about for uh, socially mediated and automatically reinforced problem behavior. Uh, we then train the parents, we train the school personnel. Uh, typically, the last week of treatment the, is done in the natural environment. So our therapists are going out with the child and their family to situations in which the, ch- the child's behavior has really been uh, challenging, going to a restaurant, going to a mall, to the grocery store. Uh, and we want to make sure that the treatment's going to work under those naturalistic conditions and then we follow them on an outpatient basis for about two years post-discharge. We have an early intervention program that has about between 35 and 40 children that come in between uh, uh, six hours a week and 25 hours per week. Um, And in all of our programs, we integrate research with our uh, clinical work. We have a virtual care program where we set up early intervention programs Uh, for kids that don't live close enough to come into the center or where it's really inconvenient for the family to do so. And we can train uh, registered behavioral technicians. We can train the parents in ABA procedures, and we can monitor and supervise the program uh, via telehealth and and web-based technologies such that we can set up a program for a child with out the child, the family, or the technician ever coming into our building. Uh, we've set up programs for kids as far away as uh, Eastern Italy, the Pescara area. We currently have two families over there that, and a third, I believe, that's just starting. That's uh, amazing. Yeah, it's a, it's a really uh, unique program. Uh, Kevin Luzinski uh, heads that program up for us.
0: Uh, we'll have to dig into that a little deeper. Uh perhaps, uh, in a, in a, in a separate episode, because anytime I talk about training on the podcast, I get lots and lots of questions. We did an episode about parent training and an episode about telehealth, both of which were really popular. So this kind of is certainly melding both of those, uh, domains, if you will. So that's, uh, that's really fascinating stuff. I and mean, especially I would imagine in the Midwest where, where, you know, I'm sure it gets pretty rural pretty quickly. Having that option is, um, Helping provide services uh, to folks who wouldn't be able to get it otherwise. So so sounds like pretty cool stuff you've got going on there. Um, So what I want to do is uh, uh, transition a little bit into some questions submitted by listeners, um, and then um, we can kind of go back to some of the the, the more function-based stuff. But um, uh, and some of these will will have some of these questions are, funct- rel- are um, related to functional analyses as well. Um, so our first listener question is uh, from Brian. Uh, he wants to know, uh, what are Dr. Fisher's thoughts on the use of precision teaching and standard acceleration charting when working to decrease maladaptive behavior and increase functional alternatives? Uh, and just to give you some context, Dr. Fitch- Fisher, we, we we've done a couple of episodes on uh, on on PT, and so I think it's uh, it certainly piqued the interest of uh, a lot of folks in the audience. Um, and if I'm not mistaken, Brian is a, uh, a PT teacher. Um, and again, the uh, questions about you know um, uh, using using PT and also you know using the standard acceleration chart in terms of aiding the interpretation of FA results. And I know that's a topic that you know you had touched on earlier in the conversation.
1: Yeah, um, uh, I don't have any strong, actually, this is one where I don't have any strong opinions either way. If someone is well-schooled in acceleration charts and finds them useful, um, then by all means, that's what they should use. From my standpoint, I've never, um, never really, you know, I've been introduced to them. I've never really used them. Um, and so it's hard for me to comment. Uh, I've found what, you know, just the regular charting by session or boy, um, trial or, um, a a cumulative record works very well for, for my type of work. Um, and I've not seen anything to say, well, if you switch over to, uh, acceleration chart that you get better or quicker interpretation. Um, But I'm always open to, you know, if someone does that research, uh, I would be interested in seeing it would certainly uh, Give it consideration, but it's not something I've I've had much experience with so I could neither promote or criticize uh, uh, Acceleration charts,
0: okay Uh, Bradshaw asks um, uh, would love to know the research on functional analysis and behavior support plans for uh, average IQ and above average IQ Uh, individuals um, and just kind of reading into her question a little bit more uh, she works uh, with typically developing adolescent males um, uh, who are you know have what we might consider you know emotional behavioral challenges or you know you know, emotional behavioral disorders I guess to use the kind of collect collective term what what's um, what's your understanding of the use of functional analyses in those populations
1: so um... Typically, um, you can certainly functional communication training uh, has been done in those populations and the use of multiple schedules. Uh, it actually goes much easier in terms of teaching children of uh, uh, normal intelligence that, you know, you can have the reinforcer. You can request the reinforcement at certain times, but not at others. Uh, that can go very quickly. And, you uh, uh, the kids catch on to that fairly quickly. Uh, We have kids that come into our severe behavior program who are uh, typically developing. We have a child right now that is um, about eight years old, uh, normal IQ, um, suspected bipolar disorder, uh, who um, we're, you know, we've gone through a functional analysis. We're going through his treatment now. Uh, He's thrown us some curve curveballs just from the standpoint that, you know, he's sometimes smarter than we are and figures things out very quickly and then and then twists them. Uh, and we have to make certain adjustments uh, for that. Um, but um, we, you know, it's a minority of the kids that we treat are uh, typically developing, um, but we don't alter our procedures dramatically for that population. And we've done Things with kids who um, were suspected of having um, uh, auditory and visual hallucinations where we analyzed those behaviors through functional analysis and basically showed that they were under uh, at, least, at least in some cases are under the control of environmental mental stimuli and if you know if we found otherwise that they persisted in the absence of uh, social contingencies that would make a stronger case that perhaps they were True auditory or visual hallucinations. But I but it but the functional analysis methods are very robust and can be used with a variety of uh populations.
0: All right. The uh next question or set of questions is from Celia, and um she starts by saying, uh, I just want to say that the fall 2016 issue of Java is one of my favorite all-time issues with both articles. Um let's see, uh, and she references two articles uh one by you and your colleagues um, and the, um, and then one uh, by uh, Jessel et al. Uh, talking about the ISCA. Um, kind of both of those articles were kind of back to back in the episode, uh, and she says behavior analysis has never been so exciting um, and just to give some context to the listeners who uh, didn't see. Um, those articles, particularly your article, I believe you guys did your own kind of assessment of the ISCA protocol. Um, Given the uh, procedural and perhaps philosophical differences between the ISCA and the standard or traditional FA, uh, what are your comments in regard to the ISCA approach? Um, What are your, also what are your thoughts as they relate to the uh, functional communication, tolerance and compliance component of the ISCA treatment? So this, I guess, we're kind of getting towards the, uh, the elephant in the room, I suppose. So, okay. Um, okay. Uh, so- and she's got a couple other questions, okay. but I guess we'll start with, with uh, okay. general discussion of right. differences between the two.
1: Sure. Let me start with the last thing first um, and say that the um, version of FCT that uh, Greg Hanley has come up with um, is very appropriate. Uh, Uh, And uh, he gets, I think, very good treatment effects. Uh, And I have no issues whatsoever with synthesizing uh, contingencies for appropriate behavior. Um, Where my disagreement comes is in synthesizing contingencies during the FA without first testing for those uh, contingencies in isolation. And so, the a traditional functional assessment as designed by Iwata, assumes that individual contingencies pr- produce primarily independent effects on problem behavior <clears throat> that's what Brian Iwata was saying at the, confer- the at the talk you you heard is that it, you know uh, attention functions as reinforcement or it doesn't escape functions as reinforcement or it doesn't and probably in very few cases do we see where uh, a child will display problem behavior when that behavior results in both attention and escape, but not when it, it, it results in attention alone or escape alone. And so that's the hypothesis that the, the contingencies operate primarily independently. Now, the synthesized FA or ISCA um, assumes simultaneous or interactive control of behavior by multiple contingencies. That is this idea that the behavior is differentially affected by the combination of attention and escape or tangible and escape or all three attention, tangible and escape. Uh, That's the uh, assumption underlying it. And one of my biggest problems with that is that uh, the synthesized FA never tests that assumption. That is, a synthesized FA simply proceeds as if the assumption were true, right? Never tests for interaction effects. So how would one test for interact? I, I shouldn't say never. Almost never would be more accurate. Uh, So how would one test for interaction effects? Well, the very basic procedure of testing for an interaction effect is you test for the effect of each variable in isolations. So for example, you test for attention, and you test for escape, and then you combine them, and you would conclude that there is an interaction effect, if and only if you get differential responding in that combined or synthesized contingency treatment, but not in either of the individual contingency conditions. So you would get uh, behavior when you synthesize it, you wouldn't get it when you deliver attention alone, and you wouldn't get problem behavior, or you'd get much less problem behavior uh, when you deliver um, uh, escape alone. Um, There is literally only one, maybe two cases in the literature where you can actually Uh, make a reasonable case that there was an interaction effect. Um, And so that raises the question, what does a synthesized analysis analyze? What's actually being analyzed? And if the research question is what individual contingencies reinforce problem behavior, then a synthesized analysis really offers no analysis. It doesn't answer that question. And if the question is, is the research what what's what a combination of contingencies interact to reinforce problem behavior the synthesized uh analysis really again it doesn't answer that question and offers no analysis but if your question is does one or more of the combined reinforcement contingencies reinforce problem behavior then a a isca or a synthesized analysis does offer an analysis and it answers that question. And in fact, I would say that's one of the positive things about it is it answers that question very, very quickly. And so I could see a, a potential um, for doing an, a synthesized analysis as a screen uh, to see if you're going uh, likely to find problem behavior when you manipulate contingencies. And I think it does that fairly well. However, um, that was my initial thinking that that might be a reasonable uh, thing to do. Uh, But we've recently uh, have a study that we're just about to write up, up. we've completed just about to write it up. And what we did in the study was to do an analog of a functional analysis. And the first thing we did was to train a function of problem behavior. And we used an analog of problem behavior where we had uh, the child hit a pad that was on the table. And we trained the child to hit a pad to either, for some children, we taught them to hit a pad to get attention, uh other children we taught to hit a pad to get access to a tangible item say an ipad and then other children we taught them to hit a pad to get uh, to access escape or a break from non-preferred tasks so going into our functional analyses we actually knew what the function of problem behavior was because we trained it with each individual participant so the next thing we did was to do a, a standard traditional functional analysis using the procedures um, described by Iwata, <laughs> and in every case, the functional analysis identified the function that we'd trained prior to starting the functional analysis. Was this done by, is,
0: by evaluators who are blind to the, uh, the training process? Uh,
1: I don't think so, but, uh, you know, um, I could double-check on whether we did. I don't think we, uh, it was, It'd be very difficult to do that in our environment with real good control of the, that they would actually be blind because it's a fairly open environment. Got it. But that's a good question. So then we did uh, a synthesized analysis where we combined all three contingencies, attention, escape, and tangible, uh, because that's the most common form of synthesized analysis. I think it accounts for about 60% of the published cases of synthesized functional analyses. And then, uh, and we got the typical results, that is, that the test condition produced rapidly produced high rates of behavior, and the control condition produced very low rates of problem behavior. And then we went back and repeated the traditional FA, and what we found is in roughly, I think it was two out of five of the five cases, we found that by synthesizing the contingencies, we actually induced a new function of problem behavior, one that we had not taught originally. So for example, we had one child who who I think had an attention function uh, that we taught. The first standard functional analysis identified that attention function and no other function. We then did the synthesized analysis and then repeated the uh, standard functional analysis. And then that repetition of the standardized functional analysis, we then had a child who had both an attention function that we taught and a new function in terms of escape from non-preferred demands. And we had another participant uh, that developed a tangible function when we hadn't taught that originally. And so one of the potential side effects and risks of a synthesized analysis is that it exposes the individual to a very powerful uh, contingency. That is, each time the problem behavior occurs, the functional reinforcer is delivered along with other potential reinforcers. And so you have the possibility of a new function developing where that new function might not have developed in the natural environment uh, because it's not often that 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 would contact uh, an NFR1 schedule in the natural environment. And so we see this as as problematic from the standpoint of um, potential negative side effects of the synthesized uh, contingency. And we have one more study that is also uh, very uh, completed and we're analyzing the data and preparing it for um, publication in which we tested out the hypothesis that the interview actually informs the functional analysis. And so what we did in that study was to use the interview formats uh, uh, developed by Hanley et al and uh, did went through the informed uh, FA uh, synthesized analysis and then uh, did other ones where we just did uh, a uninformed, I guess you'd call it, where we combined attention, tangible, and escape all into a synthesized contingency and basically compared those again with a traditional FA. And the results are not, Uh, completely clean, but basically we saw little evidence that having the interview as a way to infirm the essay produced differential results. That is, we got very similar results, whether we combined all of the uh, contingencies without basing it on an interview or whether we based what went into the synthesized contingency based on the results of um, an interview. So, um, so I guess my, uh, uh, that's my long answer. My short answer uh, is long, long,
0: hey, Dr. Fisher, <laughs> long answers are a-okay on, okay. on the podcast. So keep, yeah. keep it up.
1: Yeah. So my short answer is that we've tried to identify what the, uh, synthesized analysis does and doesn't do. And what it does do is find, uh, uh, produce differential responding between the test and control condition very consistently and very rapidly. Uh, But it also uh, does not uh, identify when there is or is not interaction effects. And it has the potential to create functions when functions hadn't hadn't existed prior to the synthesized analysis. And the At least from what we've seen, the information provided by the interview doesn't really result in different results
0: so what what is your take on I guess the, the treatment effects that Greg and some of the, the folks um, from his lab who have you know on moved on to other uh, settings uh, are getting you know, for example. I uh, just saw a paper by Joshua Jessel and others and um I think they did like 25 or 30 replications of the isca and the treatment and things like that um, um and I I looked at the paper very briefly but my impression was that the, you know they were getting good results so I mean do you, do you think there's an alternative explanation as to the outcomes that they're generating that,
1: Oh that- I think yeah I I, I think that, as I said at the outset, I think the treatment is a good one. I think combining reinforcers to reinforce uh, appropriate behavior is a good thing. Um, But combining them to reinforce problem behavior when you don't know that those uh, combined reinforcers function as reinforcement in the natural environment is potentially dangerous. And so they get really good results because if you say, okay. I don't even know what the function of problem behavior is, but I've got a good idea that it is either attention, tangible items, or escape in, you know, a majority of cases. And now I'm just going to deliver those contingent on appropriate communication response that has a high probability that that's going to be effective without really understanding the function of problem behavior.
0: I see.
1: So again, I, I have no problem with con- combining reinforcers to reduce problem behavior and reinforce alternative behavior. Uh, but I do have a problem with adding contingencies uh, to problem behavior in a functional analysis because it doesn't determine the functional function of problem behavior with any degree of specificity or accuracy and it has the potential to actually create a function where one didn't exist before.
0: Okay, cool. I appreciate your your perspective on that. Um, Celia's last question is, any chance of a, of a debate with Greg on the Behavioral Observations podcast? Celia, thank you for asking that. I don't, <laughs> I, I, you, don't, answer, well, I don't want to put you on the spot. We'll go on to another question here. Um, let's see. Bob asked a question. um, It's kind of an interesting social validity question, I think. Um, In uh, many job articles on self injury, uh, or um, uh, I've seen rate per minute graphs on the y axis of uh, zero to three, for example, and a point plotted at point one makes it look like the behavior has been effectively treated. Um, yet that is a rate of one of every 10 minutes, six per hour, 96 per day, et cetera. Um, So I guess the general question is, you know, what, uh, what does treatment success look like? um, You know, when you, when if, if a behavior is reduced, but it's still reduced at a, but it's not completely, I don't want to say eradicated, but it's still occurring at a rate, you know, depending in this example, you know, if it's, if it's a it's a very intensive self-injurious response that could still could be very meaningful. So just from a data analysis standpoint, you know, um and 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 again a social validity standpoint, what is you know, what are some indicators that you have a successful intervention?
1: Well, I think you just answered the question. Is you look at it from a data perspective and typically uh we set the criteria as a You know, 85, 90 percent reduction in problem behavior. However, if it's still occurring at troublesome rates, or it's occurring very infrequently, but it's very, very dangerous, then you haven't met the criteria of it's socially acceptable. We, you know, we have a socially valid uh, and acceptable treatment uh, for our consumers. And so, you, we really need to do both of those things. We need to make sure that. Ah, uh, we've reduced the behavior markedly um, and the our customers are sat, satisfied and happy with uh, where things are at. so um, you know my big example of what your question implies is that um, pica can be very, very dangerous with somebody who's swallowing in ed- edible objects that may be poisonous or that may be dangerous and can um cause blockages internal blockages etc um and you know my belief is that if at all possible whenever possible we need to reduce that to zero or very close to zero levels that's not possible with everybody but you have to both you know look at what the data say and then how is it from just a quality standpoint and social acceptability standpoint um have you made the individual safe and have you made your customers happy and there's there's no i don't think there's a a clear um criterion for that but both of those things need to be uh examined when you're so sometimes you have somebody that you've done everything you can and they have you know we we've, we've had kids where we've reduced their behavior by 90 95%, and then they still have episodes infrequent but very, very dangerous episodes. And so that's not successful. In some cases, th- what remains may not be operant behavior. And then we try to work with uh, the psychiatrist or developmental pediatrician to see whether or not um, there's something else that might be done, say, with medication. And sometimes, once we've treated, the operant component of someone's behavior. Um, what's left? It may be easier to diagnose. You know, here's here's something uh, that might be amenable to treatment with medication. And so um, we need to, you know, in general, we need to look at both the data. Have we reduced it as much as we possibly can. And um, is it possible that something else, other than behavior analysis, may be appropriate for what remains?
0: All right. Um, I want to wrap up here uh, in a little bit. Um, I want to wrap up with some kind of, um, I guess, practice level questions in terms of our field. Uh, So a two part question. First of all, do you have any concerns for our field? You know, uh, one of the things that's said a lot is that our field is kind of in its infancy and it's obviously going through a rapid expansion phase right now. Um, so do you have any concerns about where behavior analysis is or where it's going? And then conversely, are there developments in the field that uh, that you're excited about and looking forward to seeing where things head?
1: Okay. So um, what I'm worried about, uh, I would say there are three primary things. Uh, one is the field is rapidly expanding, uh, as you said, and that's by and large a good thing. Uh, but what I worry about with that is that um, we need to deliver on quality control. And so uh, when we train people, uh, we need to train them to mastery performances behavior analysts. Uh, and we need to give them good supervised experience uh, so that when we turn them loose and have them start working uh, with kids and families, uh, that they're going to do a good job and it's going to reflect well in our field. And so, quality control I think is a major uh, issue as we continue to grow uh, at a fairly rapid uh, rate. Um, a second thing that I worry about is also related to growth, and that has to do with um, our costs. Um, so. The As we treat more and more kids, um, the cost of behavior analysis becomes more and more noticeable. And so if we ever get to a point where we're treating all the kids on the autism spectrum with the levels of service that they need, it's going to be a huge amount of money. Uh, And uh, that will probably result in reactions from politicians, insurance companies, etc., And what we should be doing is figuring out how to be more efficient and do behavior analysis well with less resources uh, before somebody imposes resources and we don't have that technology down to be both efficient and effective. Uh, and I think that's an important area that of research that we really need to focus on. And then the third thing, uh, also growth related, is that we're now seeing uh, in venture, investment capitalists uh, come into the field, uh, corporations buying up uh, behavior analysis companies, some of the more larger ones. But that, um, And so uh, I'm concerned about um, uh, we, we try to make money at what we do, um, we try to pay our folks a reasonable wage, uh, but corporations are gonna come in with a profit motivation uh, that will, you know, perhaps negatively impact the quality of services. And so I worry about um, as that happens, um, will the effectiveness of ABA services suffer uh, based on a profit motivation? Um, I don't know for sure that that's going to happen, but it's something I worry about.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and any... any um, uh, The last question would be, um, you know, and I close this I mean, pr- pretty much every interview with this question, I always find that the answers are uh, surprising, but w- do you have any advice for a newly minted BCBA? Someone just went through all the co- coursework, all the supervision they studied, their butts off and, uh, and pass the exam. They're in their first job right now. Um, what, what, what advice do you have to that practitioner?
1: Yeah, there's a, a saying that we have here, um, about, uh, something we call bucket awareness. Um, at some point in our life, we all experience going around as if we had a bucket on our head. And, um, because, and, and when you're a newbie CBA, uh, you start getting referrals and kids and things that maybe weren't covered in your classes and weren't discussed in sufficient detail. And you feel like you're going around with a bucket on your head uh, and bumping into things and not knowing exactly how to proceed. And what I would recommend is that you approach that with what we call bucket awareness, that you realize and be willing to admit that you're walking around with a bucket on your head and bumping into things. And when you don't know something, that you seek appropriate help and supervision and don't come away thinking, I have the certificate now, I can do anything. Um, All of us have our limitations, including myself. I consider myself a student of behavior analysis and I learn things every day. Uh, And I think when you're new to the field and you have that uh, new, you have your degree and you have your certificate, uh, there is some social expectation that you have to be able to solve problems and everything that comes at you immediately. And I recommend that people recognize that they can't always do that and that they seek out help uh, when they need it.
0: Great. Well, fantastic uh, thoughts to end on. Uh, Dr. Fisher, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you for for inviting me. I enjoyed it.
0: Okay, folks, thanks for joining me today in episode 45. I will see you again next time, hopefully with a not-so- a grating voice. I kind of feel like I sound like one of Marge Simpson's sisters. And again, next time uh, it'll be better. So I look forward to seeing you in episode forty-six. Huge thanks to ChartLytics and Opera and Coffee for sponsoring the program. And uh, I'll see you later.
1: Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Behavioral Observations Podcast with Matt Secoria. You can find Matt's notes on this episode at www com. We also invite you to stay connected with us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash behavioral observations and on Twitter at Behavior Podcast.